Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be looking at an interesting question about the human mind and some of its uh, possibly innate or possibly learned capacities. And those capacities have to do with numbers. We're, today we're going to be looking at the question of the uh, the origins in the brain of numeracy. Yeah, this is uh, this is one of those topics that I uh, found rather interesting for for a while, and it's it's a great one to dive into because on one hand there's the there, there's this, the stuff about it that just seems to be true that you uh, and you that we take for granted, and then when you dive into it, you find all sorts of um, uh, you know arguments on two different sides of the equation, and then sometimes a lot of the argumentation is about like where you're drawing the line between in this case like what is uh, what is like preloaded uh, hardware and software and what is is learned what is uh, transmitted educationally culturally etc like where what is what is our innate uh, number sense and how does that then allow us to build upon it numeracy uh, mathematics etc uh, you know when do the numbers come in you know is there is there something that is five that is that is already in the brain or is easily um, more easily acquired by the human brain for, as compared to, you know, animal brains, uh, you know, you can ultimately kind of chase your tail through all of this. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, it's, it's a wonderful experience, wonderful topic we're going to get into here. Now, like so many of the most interesting topics, one thing about it is that you quickly realize like the central noun that you're discussing is much harder to define <laughs> than you might guess. If you, you know, like everybody knows what a number is, right? You, you just know that intuitively. But could you give the definition of a number, please? Uh, I'll wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love for everyone out there to think about that for just a second. So what, what comes to your mind? I, I, for me, like if you just ask me that question and don't give me a chance to sort of like back it up. The first thing I think about are are shorts, cartoon shorts on Sesame Street, you know, mm -hmm. because ultimately like that's the case. We're sort of hit very early on with with numerical and counting, uh, essentially propaganda, you know, like like the, let us show you the way of the numbers. But yeah, as we'll get into here, like what what is what is actually already there, what is built upon, etc. Um, so yeah, I thought it would be good to to get into a you know basically a brief discussion of just what numbers are. Now this might seem a bit elementary to many of you, but uh, first of all, I'd invite you to sit in on an elementary math class or or just take a look through uh, an elementary student's math textbook and see how that comparison stacks up with what you think you know. Uh, I, I find that it's often a, a learning experience about oneself and one's own uh, mathematical skills by by looking at how kids today are learning math. Well, one of the interesting things is that I don't think you can begin to teach mathematics or even uh, uh, arithmetic sense by starting with the most basic questions like what is a number. You actually have right. to start at a higher level and work your way down to that. Yeah, I think ultimately numbers and math are, are things that we, we so easily take for granted and we forget at a basic level what they actually are. Uh, so I think it's helpful to sort of take a, a back step uh, before moving forward uh, from in order to have that maximum wonder with the topic. So um, I, I remember looking at a couple of sources on this uh, several years back uh, when I wrote a, an article on math for how stuff works. So one of those was um, uh, Stanislaus Dehaney's What Are Numbers Really? A Cerebral Basis for uh, Number Sense. And that was published on Edge. Uh, but I also had a wonderful book that sadly is um, – I think it's at the office, so I, haven't, I don't have access to it right now. But it mm. was by, uh, by two authors, Richard Courant and Herbert Robbins, titled What is Mathematics? That was from University, uh, Oxford University Press, published back in 1996. But um, that, that's a great book if you just want to like, all right, I, I'm going to start from the basics. Let me learn what math <laughs> okay. is. Uh, and, 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 you know, it builds up from there. So as, as for what a number is, again, you probably don't need more than that you know, moment of contemplation to, to state that it's a word and it's a symbol and it represents a count, not a vampire count, uh, because that's where mine, my mind goes instantly as well. Again, the Sesame Street, but, uh, but a count as in um, 
an understanding of, of, of how many things, an analysis of how many things there are, a quantity. I came across a definition of numbers that uh, I thought was very useful, and this was one that was derived from a study that was authored by uh, Rafael Nunez et al., who uh, is a figure I'll come back to later in this episode. But this definition was that numbers are discrete entities with exact values that are represented by symbols in the form of words and signs. So like each part of that definition, I think, contributes something important about what a number is. So first of all, discrete, meaning each one is different from the others. Mm -hmm. uh, exact values is very important to the concept yeah. of a number because uh, because a number is different than a quantity. Quantities can be fuzzy, right? Like you can look at a quantity of something and say, I don't know, this seems approximately more than this other thing. Mm -hmm. But seven is not just more than five. It is exactly two more than five. And that never changes. So, right. Yeah, so the numbers are exact. And then finally, uh, and you alluded to this in, in your definition you just cited, it's represented by symbols such as words or signs. And this also seems like a very important thing in that a number can exist independently of a concrete object being counted. So in a world without human mathematics, obviously there could still be a pile of five rocks if there were no humans and no math. But could there still be the number five without any rocks? That's an open question, I think. With numbers, you can store, manipulate, and interpret the symbols themselves independent of any observable material reality to be counting. You can just say, what's five plus two, not like five apples plus two apples. Yeah, like it, I guess it's irresistible to compare it to words in this respect, even though it's not a one-to-one -one here. But we we think about how you have like a word, the word cat that stands in for that thing you're looking at, that, that furry creature that mm -hmm. is distinct from other furry creatures. And once you have that label for it, that enables communication and various other more advanced uses of said information, uh, as opposed to just having to describe the beast every time you need to tell someone about right. it and not having like an easy peg for what a cat is if you want to, you know, engage in metaphors, etc. You don't have to say the four-legged boss of my house every time. Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, this is where we get into like the idea of, OK, what if I what if I didn't have the word for cat? What could I still do? Uh, you know, and, and likewise, if I did not have the numbers, what could I still do? And this is ultimately going to be a question that we're going to go back and forth on throughout this episode. And, and uh, you know, there, there are arguments on both sides, essentially. But um, it, it comes down to this idea of. Of, 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 of numeracy and also number sense. So I've read that the numeracy seems to entail, first of all, approximate representation of numerical magnitude, and then two, precise representation of the quantity of individual items. And uh, th there's, there's a, an argument to be made that this is an innate ability of human beings. We'll discuss more what this means in a bit, and we'll also discuss animals. Um, and the idea here is that it, that whatever is innate there does not depend on individual or cultural acquisition of mathematical knowledge, that mathematical knowledge is then built upon what is already innate. Yeah, and I guess one of the big questions we're looking at here is when humans manipulate numbers with their brains, when they count, when they do arithmetic, addition, subtraction, and all that, what part of what they're doing is innate? What part is just there already in the brain without any education whatsoever? And what part, if any, is a product of culture, is something that was invented at some point in history and has to be learned? Yeah. Now, uh, it's interesting to, to realize that, that numeracy appears to predate literacy in human culture by several thousand years. Neolithic societies used clay and stone counters to keep track of quantities of stored goods, for example. And, uh, and counting was a primary function of written records in the earliest state societies of the late 4th millennium BCE. Uh, this was pointed out by... Um, uh, anthropologist Brian M. Fagan and Eleanor Robson uh, uh, in the, um, uh, you know, The Great Inventions of the Ancient World. But uh, Robson is the author of Mesopotamian Math and the Literature of Ancient uh, Sumer. So um, I, I found their thoughts on this rather interesting. They, they point that the first large-scale evidence of mathematics as an intellectual activity probably dates to the Middle Bronze Age in Egypt around uh, 1560 BCE. 
But that would be mathematics as an intellectual activity. So right. more in the realm of what you might see people doing with you know pure math today. Obviously, the more functional things like counting go yeah. even further back, much further yeah. back. Yeah, this is getting down to like, how do we keep track of these goods? How do we trade with these goods? We need things to stand in for certain quantities. And this definitely came up in the past when we've talked about the, some of the earliest written records that exist. A lot of that, uh, you might think, well, what are the earliest written records? Is it, you know, is it mythology? Is it telling like a great poem about the creation of the world? I mean, mm -hmm. we do have very ancient examples of that, but actually older than that are written records that seem to usually denote uh, quantities of property. Who has how much of this or how much of this do you owe me and so forth? Yeah, and I think I, uh, this, like a number of topics we've discussed in the show, I think a lot of it comes back to you know some some key aspects of human cognition that there are limits to what we've evolved to deal with, you know, and then we have to to build upon uh, upon that natural ability. So, for example, it's one thing to know how many bags of coffee you need to buy on each grocery store visit in order for you or your immediate family to get through to the next week, you know? Like, if you're like me, you may not even need to get into numbers at all, you know? You just realize, well, I have less than one bag. I'll need more than that to get through the week. So I guess get one bag, and then once I have that pattern down, I can just keep doing that for the rest of my life. Wait, what, what if your need for coffee uh, explodes? What if it just increases exponentially? Oh, uh, well... That's a great question because you could, I guess, hand you could you could handle that for, at least for a while. Um, uh, I mean, that's the thing when complications enter the picture, be it mm -hmm. um, you know uh, fluctuations or or just increased change, uh, or how about this? What if you were buying coffee for two different houses? So your house and I don't know, maybe you have a vacation home or maybe you agreed to buy all the coffee for your parents' house mm -hmm. and your siblings' house. Oh, and then how about this? You also have a business and it sells coffee and you need to provide it with coffee. And oh, now you have two locations with mm -hmm. two different streams of clientele. So, I mean, the details of this, I guess, aren't as important. It's just the idea that like whatever is in your immediate sphere regarding some level of number sense, uh, and even numeracy, like you're going to have to you're going to have to build upon that if you're going to deal with some sort of larger uh, experience that emerges out of human invention. This just goes to highlight something that I think will be increasingly apparent as as we uh, talk throughout the episode that what kind of sense of numbers you need has very much to do with how you're making a living with what you have to do to get by. And so some people may have ways of making a living that are essentially almost totally devoid of need for, for numbers of more than a handful, whereas other people have ways of making a living that are heavily exact number dependent. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like how you mentioned uh, a handful of numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I think we're going to do another episode in the future that is going to deal more specifically with like the creation of numbers, the invention of numbers and different number systems. Uh, but it is interesting to think of our fingers and ultimately our toes as well, because one of the initial steps here is that humans had to come up with ways to augment their number sense. We already mentioned using little tokens to stand in, or, you know, clay tablets and whatnot to stand in for things. But another method, of course, is just uh, that's immediately available is turning to fingers and or toes. You have 10 <laughs> fingers, you have 10 toes. And for this reason, various numerical systems depend on groups of 5, 10, or 20. Base 10 or decimal systems stem from the use of both hands, while base 20 or uh, vagisimal systems are based on the use of fingers and toes. So the argument here is that, you know, this is ultimately an externalization of number sense, that this is the root, the roots of mathematics or the bedrock upon which mathematics may be built. Um, and, and I guess that's the way I keep coming back to thinking about it or the way that I've, I've thought about it for a while. The idea of, 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 of number sense and numeracy and mathematics, it's like building this tower. You know, that we we keep building, uh, that you have these different types of numbers that are utilized. Uh, you have different um, uh, types of mathematics. And the higher the tower ascends, the greater height, the greater power, the greater your vantage point from which to understand the cosmos. Uh, a cosmos that, that some, for instance, Max Tegmark, goes as far as to describe as a single vast mathematical object. <laughs> 
So I actually got the idea to talk about this today when I was reading a couple of recent articles that I found very interesting. One was a, a, a news feature in Nature from June of 2021 by Colin Barris called How Did Neanderthals and Other Ancient Humans Learn to Count? Uh, and so, so that got my brain going on this. But also I was reading an article by Philip Ball in Eon Magazine called How Natural is Numeracy? Uh, now, as to the specific archaeological evidence, linguistic evidence, and other stuff about how, how humans, in fact, first started displaying number sense, we might come back to that more in a future episode. I, I wanted to focus more today on this question of how natural is numeracy, to what degree is our number sense innate. And so, of course, you know, like we were saying at the beginning, it can feel very natural to be able to count to 137. Mm -hmm. But basic numerical literacy that includes counting up to arbitrary numbers and the ability to do basic math, it might seem so natural that you just assume it is an evolved biological capacity, right? Something that any human brain could just automatically do naturally. Uh, but actually, there, there's some question about this. The question would be, how do we know that numeracy uh, is not to some degree, an invented cultural capacity, more like the ability to read sheet music or the ability to play football, something that generally people can do if they're taught how to do it, but it's not something that's like in our biology as a part of our ancestral evolved uh, capabilities. One of the things I love about this discussion or, or even argument, if, if you want to frame it that way, uh, and it's, you know, it's been going on for a while, is it also, it, it lines up rather well with the, the, the argument slash discussion of whether mathematics is a human invention or a human discovery, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and and I've, it's one of those two where, I don't know, I, being one that's not you know, like professionally engaged with either side, mm -hmm. I, I, tended to, I tend to sort of fall in the middle and think, well, it seems like it's, it's, it's both, right? I mean, it's, it's both this thing that, we, uh, that is the universe and is a description of the universe. Mm -hmm. It is both this thing that we have some level of innate uh, capability for, and yet it is also, there is also undeniably um, you know, plenty of it that is acquired, that is, uh, that is written down in a textbook and then, or, or put into a, a Sesame Street short and then related in, you know, into the mind. So, um, uh, uh, this, uh, again, that's this, this something that I just find um, fascinating about the topic. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could argue that it is to some degree like uh, you could say it's like the rules of chess. So like mm -hmm. chess is not something that exists outside of human invention. Humans had to invent it. But once you have invented the rules, it's not up to human chess players to say like, what is the most advantageous move or something like that? That's just objectively true. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so like you, you have created a system of rules and symbols, but it turns out within that system of rules and symbols, you can discover objectively true facts about the universe. Right. So I, I guess it would be like if chess gave you objective understanding of actual warfare. I don't know. Maybe it does <laughs> to a certain extent. Um, Except that horses horses are not <laughs> limited by going what uh, two spaces up and then one to the side or or one space up and then one diagonal depending on how you which is it which is it considered is the horse going two up and then one over or is it going one up and then one diagonal the knight rather it's not the horse, the horse I think it's two up and one over it's okay. two up and one over yeah it is a fact of physics that bishops can only move diagonally <laughs> have you ever seen a bishop strafe I have not mm -hmm. it's true. But anyway, to, to come back to, to the main question uh, we're talking about here, uh, again, it, it's not so much the bigger question about, like, is math a, a pre-existing sort of fact of the universe or is it a human invention that merely describes the universe? The question here would be, uh, is numeracy a baseline evolved capability in the human brain? Meaning, like, do you have number meat in your head? Mm -hmm. Or is it a cultural invention that makes use of some meat in your head? It makes use of the brain's natural capacities, but is not itself an evolved uh, innate capacity. Not something that would be arrived at unless you were taught it. Now, there is plenty of evidence that researchers point to as, uh, as supporting the idea of a biologically endowed number sense. 
And one thing that often gets pointed to here is the is the capacity of other animals for certain kinds mm-hmm. of number consciousness. Uh, and so the question would be, to what extent are non-human animals capable of numeracy? What kinds of number consciousness, if any, can they demonstrate and where do they differ from us? So studies with animals, including monkeys, some apes, uh, marine mammals like dolphins and dogs have shown that these creatures do have some basic innate sense of quantity. For example, they can look at two groups of food items and they can usually tell which one has more items in it, provided that the numbers of items are small enough. So if it's like, you know, fewer than 10 items, more often than not, a dog can look at that and tell which which pile has more food items in it and go to that pile. Uh, and in fact, it's sometimes uh, even to surprising extents, there, there was one study that Ball linked to that I thought was interesting called uh, Quantity-Based Judgments in the Domestic Dog, uh, published in the journal Animal Cognition in 2007 by Camille Ward and Barbara B. Smuts. And these authors tested dogs on the mental management of different food quantities. And one of the things they found was that uh, in in a second experiment they did – so, well, their first experiment was that they would simultaneously visually present two uh, options to a dog. And they would see, you know, does the dog reliably choose the larger quantity of food instead of the smaller quantity? And they found that, yes, dogs on average do tend to go more for the larger quantity when they can see both. But they found that numerically close comparisons were more difficult. So like, you know, if, if it's like five versus six, the dog's going to have a harder time going to the six than if it's, you know, eight versus three. But uh, they also found, interestingly, that uh, in a second experiment, they had some additional conditions where the food was not visually available to the dog at the time they made their choice. So the food would be shown to the dog and then hidden from the dog, and then the dog would have to make a choice. So the question is, does the dog remember the differences in quantities when it can't see it right in the moment? And they found, yeah, even in this case, quote, subjects still chose the larger quantity more often than the smaller quantity when the food was not simultaneously visible at the time of choice. And they also said that they work to uh, exclude other cues, like olfactory cues. You know, maybe the dog can smell more food in one case than the other. And uh, and cueing by the experimenters, they they work to eliminate those influences. Uh, so it seems if there's really no chance that dogs have culturally learned or invented number systems that they're working from. Uh, so if they can more often than not visually assess numbers of food items, tell which grouping has more, even when they can no longer see them, maybe you could interpret that as a sign that there's some kind of innate capacity, not just in human brains, but in the broader mammalian brain structure for understanding numbers, at least in a rudimentary way, right? Uh, well, maybe not so fast. We, we will come back to that. Um, but there are plenty of other examples that have been cited of, of animals showing some kind of sense of what could be called numeracy or maybe would be called appreciation of quantities, if not numbers. Uh, for example, I was, I was looking at one study uh, published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences by Rosa Rugani, that was studying uh, the appreciation of differences in quantities in day-old chicks. So these are chickens. Mm-hmm. They've hatched for one day, and they can tell some differences in quantities of, uh, of food looking like pellet items. So you know in the dogs, the chicks, this this is not something they learned in school. It's not a cultural invention here. This is playing on some innate capacity they have. Now, I found that really interesting what you said earlier about um, about them accounting for the idea that the dog might smell more meat in one mm-hmm. direction as opposed to the other uh, and, and, and instead focusing more on visual stimuli. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps this is something they get into in, in the study for sure, but is that fair, I wonder, with something like a dog whose who's, um, olfactory uh, senses are far superior to that of humans? Like, ulti- like if they are thinking based on olfactory data as opposed to visual data, like, aren't we ultimately talking about the same thing? Well, I mean, so that gets into something interesting about numbers, right? So a dog could maybe smell that one pile of meat has more meat in it than another mm-hmm. pile. Uh, but would that involve numbers? Because so you could take like one ounce of meat and cut it in half 
And that's now like two pieces of meat, but it would be mm-hmm. the same mass of it, right? So you'd imagine it would emit probably about the same amount of smell. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the visual sense is especially useful for distinguishing numbers of objects, you know? Yeah. I don't know how exactly that would change our understanding of the study, but it is a good point, and it raises this interesting question about uh, gross quantity versus discrete numbers of quantity. You know, like, d- does yeah. it make make a difference to a dog to have, like uh, – if it's the exact same weight of meat, but it's cut into more pieces. Yeah. Clearly, and this may be a product of our numerical education, we're very primed to think about numbers of pieces of something, you know, which mm-hmm. is why it seems like it's better to get like more smaller pieces of candy than one big piece of candy, right? Yeah. I mean, the candy being key, I guess, because, you know, also candy plays into some of these experiments with uh, with humans, which we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get into in a bit here. But like you think about the like the chocolate bar that you get and it already has the divisions, you know, mapped out uh, so that you can be completely fair about how how the pieces are broken up. This is a no cheat candy bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I also wanted to mention that there, there is research also in human babies uh, for evidence of a biologically endowed number sense that is not learned through culture. And so, for example, in his article, Philip Ball cites a cognitive neuroscientist named Daniel Ansari of the University of Western Ontario in uh, London, Canada. And Ansari says, quote, studies with newborns and infants show that if you show them eight dots repeatedly and then change it to 16 dots, areas in the right parietal cortex of the brain respond to a change in numerosity. This response is very similar in adults. And uh, this this uh, might not be exactly what it seems. We, we can come back to this later, but that's at least sort of a baseline finding. And there are plenty of people who adhere to this view and interpret this uh, this evidence favorably. For example, Ball cites uh, a researcher named Andreas Nieder, who is a neuroscientist at the University of Tübingen in Germany. And actually, Nieder is cited in both of the articles I mentioned earlier. Uh, but this researcher argues that the neuroscience helps support the idea that human number sense is innate and a product of biological evolution rather than just culture. And one big clue here is the is the uh, brain imaging showing similarities between what happens when non-human animals and babies process quantities in the brain and when adult humans process quantities and numbers in the brain. And so Nieder would argue that the similarity in the biological substrate here points to an innate biological capacity, that you've got some number meat. And this debate's actually been going on for quite some time. I think there's sort of a revival in interest in it with some recent research that's been mm-hmm. coming out. But uh, people have been talking about this question for a while. Yeah, I mean, to the point where, I mean, I feel like it would be difficult. Like sometimes when we're discussing two sides of a, of a given debate, we can sort of easily point to like the key papers, the key studies, um, or, or just, or, or just, you know, pick a handful. And, and uh, I feel like it, this is one of those situations where you, yeah, you just have kind of like ebbs and flows of, uh, of, of, of uh, as far as the whole research goes. But, uh, yeah, like as far back as 1995, uh, there was a, an article that I was looking at that I found rather helpful by Robert Schwartz, um, discussing the debate. And this was, uh, in the philosophy of science journal. And the article was titled is mathematical competence innate. And uh, Schwartz points out that you know some of the the earlier principles before models uh, the, 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 these um, the, the work here relates to uh, some published uh, findings uh, in the 1970s by Gelman and Gallistel, and that they quote argue that innate number specific principles underlie children's ability to count. Okay, so maybe we invent the words for numbers, but that the the number sense is already something in the brain that they're innately harnessing. Right. Uh, But then a counter argument that Schwartz mentions, uh, and this was one that uh, that he cites Karen C. uh, Fusen from 1988, uh, who uh, argued a principles after model. And the idea here would be that children begin by mechanically repeating sequences of counting words. And that it builds up from there. Hmm. Um, and so Schwartz goes from there, uh, you know, in, in, in relatively short time uh, to discuss the divide as follows. I want to read this quote because I thought it was pretty helpful. Quote, in many discussions of mathematical cognition, the principles before model is identified as a nativist thesis and the principles after model as non-nativist. 
I believe this is a mistake. For suppose the principles before model is correct, that children understand the basis for counting before they are able to count, and that this understanding guides skill development. Nothing specifically mathematical is thereby innate. A principles before model is a nativist thesis only if the how-to-count principles are themselves not learned. Showing this, however, is not easy. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I like that breakdown. I like the way that he uh, approaches uh, the divide, if you will. Oh, I see. Okay, so even if there is some underlying capacity that's being harnessed um, when when you are learning to count, you would still have to show that the underlying capacity was not itself something that had been learned before the counting education took place. Yeah, like um, I mean. One way that I was thinking about some of this earlier was to was thinking about like, okay, what happens when I pick up a paintbrush, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, because on one level I have more or less, you know, I have this innate ability where I can pick up something and it and my body schema updates to incorporate it. I mean, that's just basic tool use. That is that is something uh, that uh, that our our species has going for it. Right. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you can pick up a paintbrush and then. Uh, you, you know, uh, you know, reproduce the the works of Michelangelo or what have you, or create just anything of, of you know, of 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 usefulness. Mm-hmm. There is a place where you cross the threshold of innate ability and you get into um, education and skill acquisition, right? Well, and I guess it's a good question in the case of the paintbrush, also, like what part of it is the innate part? Like, what what's the part yeah. that is just what kind of animal you are, and what is the part where you're see you're watching things that other people have done and you've learned from them? Yeah. Um, there's a good distinction in that Philip Ball article where he talks about the example of tennis. You know, so like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, nobody would seriously argue that we are biologically evolved to play tennis. Right. And yet, of course, tennis does make use of tons of things that are biologically evolved. Good tennis players make use of a range of capacities that probably evolve based on their uh, ancestral pressures involving things like hunting or searching the environment or for movement or escape behaviors, perhaps throwing, you know, so like there were things that originally shaped what our bodies, our nervous systems and our muscles could do. And that's not exactly what we're doing, but it's somehow close enough that we can use those uh, skills and, and capacities for this highly artificial thing like tennis. Yeah, like what is tennis but hit thing with stick, right? But hit thing with stick that is taken to um, a very specific and advanced degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, you know, hitting things with stick is something innate ever since the monolith came. But um <laughs> But, you know, you could like take you know, like all the Olympics, like a lot of it kind of, well, not all of it, but there's a lot of stuff there that kind of comes down to hit thing with stick or do things with rock and or do things with rock and stick. Yeah, there are very few competitions there that you could say are just like purely biologically adapted, to, though, maybe things that are just purely like running or jumping or wrestling or something like that. But yeah, once mm-hmm. you're involving uh, once you're involving rules and a ball and all that, you're getting increasingly abstract away from the ancestral environment. But but the environment is, is also key here because like you, you pointed out earlier, like it's not just a situation of, you know, you pick up the paintbrush and then you figure out in a vacuum what to do with it. You're immersed mm-hmm. in, you're in, in, a, in a culture, in an environment in which it is used in a particular way. You're seeing it used in a particular way, even if, if and then, um, you know, there's probably going to be some level of, of, um, of direction and education mm-hmm. uh, there as well. Uh, so, uh, I, for instance, there was another treatment on this by Baruti et al. Um, in, uh, titled The Development of Young Children's Early Number and Operation Sense and Its Implications for Early Childhood Education from 2006. And they pointed out that, you know, that, um, that a young child's, whatever their spontaneous number attention is, that's the, how they defined it, spontaneous number attention, it's then going to be also affected by their age, by their language, by their collective makeup. I mean, there, there are all these other factors that come in. Yeah, of, of course, that's true. And so one thing that might be helpful for sorting this out is looking at the question of what is it that uh, that typically non-human animals and, and babies have not been documented to do in any known case that uh, that can be done once you have a numerical education. And uh, I think one of the important things here is the ability to make fine distinctions between differences in quantities of, again, more than a handful. 
So animals of all sorts with non-symbolic quantitative senses might be able to tell a difference between one and two, or between two and three, or between three and five, and they might be able to tell a difference between 100 and 200. But what seems really unique of humans with a number education is the ability to tell the difference between something like 21 and 22 or the difference between 150 and 153. And I do think the researchers who favor the biological adaptation argument would, would acknowledge this point, that this seems to be a unique and different kind of thing. So I guess this brings us to the other camp of researchers, the ones who are more sympathetic to the idea that, uh, that numeracy is in some sense a cultural invention and it needs to be learned. Uh, now, there's one major figure in this area of research who is mentioned in both of the articles I, I talked about up top that uh, that got me interested in this subject, and it is the cognitive scientist Rafael Nunez of the University of California at San Diego. Now, I knew his name seemed familiar when I read it, so I was like, I bet we've talked about him in the past. I looked it up in our previous notes, and actually, he was involved in some of the cultural variance research on pointing that we talked about in the pointing episodes. You remember this, Rob? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the study that found that while pointing with the index finger is very common around the world, there are some cultural and language groups that have a preference for facial pointing, pointing often with the nose instead of with the, the index finger. And the specific example they looked at was the Yupno people of Papua New Guinea. Uh, I remember that study was really interesting because it was trying to find, well, what could be some possible explanations why this uh, why this one group of people, this language group, tends to prefer pointing with the nose instead of with the hand, or at least a higher relative frequency of pointing with the nose than you find in other cultures and language groups. And there were a number of possible explanations there. I didn't want to get into all of them, but one that seemed interesting and perhaps very relevant to today's topic was the possibility that it could have something to do with the Yupno language having more geographically specific demonstratives than many other languages do. So, for example, not just like this and that, which we have in English, but versions of this and that that encode more specific location information with, quote, uphill-downhill distinctions and a three-way distance contrast. So imagine if you had words for like this and that that sort of included something akin to uh, north, south, east, west, nearer, further, and that kind of thing. Would you need to do as much pointing in your life? Oh, that's a good point. Or at least uh, would you need to do the kind of precise pointing that's uh, achievable with the finger or would a more general kind of facial point or nod in the direction be more uh, suitable? Anyway, I remember – so that was really interesting. But we're talking about the same researcher here, Nunez. And he has an idea to make sense of some of the research with animals and babies showing some limited numerical distinctions they can make. And his idea here is that of making a distinction between numerical cognition and what he calls quantical cognition. So here to read from Philip Ball's article in summarizing this, quote, the perceptual rough discrimination of stimuli differing in numerousness or quantity seen in babies and other animals is what he calls quantical cognition. The ability to compare 152 and 153 items in contrast is numerical cognition. Quantical cognition cannot scale up to numerical cognition via biological evolution alone, Nunez said. And this seems to correspond with the possibility that without education to the contrary, humans naturally tend to process quantities in terms of a logarithmic scale rather than an arithmetic scale. Yeah, there there was one uh, study that uh, I was looking at. Uh, uh, there are a lot of studies that deal with logarithmic thinking in, in, in infants, but I was just looking at a 2013 Duke Institute for Brain Sciences study that found that babies that were good at discerning between large and small groups of items before learning to count were mm. more likely to do better with numbers in the future. And so the idea here, again, is that there there is you know some sort of primitive number sense that the acquisition of numeracy and mathematics is built atop of. But even that, the researchers, they were you know quick to point out that this doesn't mean you can totally predict an infant's mathematical future off of this data, but rather that there's some sort of cognitive overlap between the two. Yeah. And I think there there probably is. But to explain the difference more, we should say – so the arithmetic scale is the one that you learn in school. The arithmetic mm -hmm. scale is the one with a number line 
where each number increases by one and is evenly spaced. So 151 is more than 150. So when you picture the number line, it's like that. Each plus one is uh, is evenly spaced. But under logarithmic cognition, in contrast, the difference between numbers is about ratios rather than about absolute magnitude increasing one unit at a time. Hmm. So under logarithmic cognition, the difference between something like, you know, like 1,000 and 2,000 can be viewed as similar to the difference between 1 and 2, even though on the arithmetic scale, it's a 1,000 times more of a difference. And you can, you can again see, this kind of comes back to the coffee description from earlier. Like, you know, on, 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 a, on a logarithmic level, there's really, what's the difference between 1,000 and 1,001, right? Right. And if and if you were just dealing on an individual level, I mean, there's ultimately no experiential difference between the two. Yes. But if you're dealing in units of like a thousand things, mm-hmm. you know, like, and then then there is a real difference between a thousand and a thousand and one, you know, or between a thousand and nine ninety nine, you know. Well, th- this actually brings me back to. Do you remember when we did the episode on Fermi estimation? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a so, slightly yeah. different thing, but so. Uh, you're a physicist like Enrico Fermi. You obviously need uh, arithmetic sense of numbers in order to do precise calculations to do your science. But also, Fermi was famous for being good at estimating quantities. When other, whereas other people, you know, other colleagues of his who had very good arithmetic number sense might not be. He was really good at just looking at something and guessing some huge number that would turn out to be actually quite accurate. And apparently, a lot of his reasoning was based on not getting bogged down in particulars, but thinking about things in terms of orders of magnitude, Mm. which actually seems closer to the logarithmic type consciousness. Maybe that kind of thing is really good for fast and dirty estimation of meaningful quantities. Yeah. But another way of putting it is that on the logarithmic scale, differences between numbers become smaller or less important as the numbers increase. So, you know, the difference between one and two is huge. The difference between two and three is still pretty big. Once you're getting into the differences between 28 and 29, these are not very meaningful distinctions anymore. Mm And there is some research indicating that some people who live in hunter-gatherer societies today tend to conceive of quantities in a logarithmic sense rather than an arithmetic sense. And I think you could make a very strong case that this way of looking at numbers, the logarithmic version, is biologically adaptive in a way that uh, that arithmetic numeracy is not necessarily. Uh, so again, to read from Ball's article, quote, Attributing more weight to the difference between small than between large numbers makes good sense in the real world and fits with what a researcher named uh, Vim Fias says about judging by difference ratios. A difference between families of two and three people is of comparable significance in a household as the difference between 200 and 300 people in a tribe, while the distinction between tribes of 152 and 153 is negligible. And so I think this could be a very insightful uh, way of breaking through this issue. It, It seems to me quite conceivable that logarithmic cognition is the baseline for reasoning about quantities. It's just sort of what our brains naturally do, and that we have to harness that innate capacity for for logarithmic thinking and retrain it to use the equally spaced arithmetic number line through education in school, since that arithmetic number line is useful for certain types of work, work that we often end up getting trained for, like if you need to be an engineer or an architect or something. Yeah, and and I think it's also worth worth stressing that that the idea that say a, a human infant can engage in logarithmic thinking, like that's incredible. Like that's that's I find that really amazing. I, I like I don't think the read on it should be if if that is indeed the cutoff, if that is the the base upon which the the further you know tower of of numbers and mathematics is built. Like that's still really incredible. I think that's 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 amazing to think about uh, the the way that the you know that this developing mind is able to to view the world and look at you know one pile of marshmallows versus another. I know I'm taking the difficult um, stance of babies are are, are good <laughs> as opposed to babies are bad and dumb. Well, yeah, I think one very important takeaway from this is that 
the more logarithmic style of conceiving of numbers is in in no way an indication of like a lack of sophistication or anything like that. Instead, it has to do with what kinds of uh, quantity concepts are useful for your way of life. Like what do you need to do to get through a day? And for some ways of making a living, arithmetic uh, cognition may be more useful, but for other ways of living, uh, a more approximate logarithmic cognition might be more useful. So it's really just a question of what do you need in order to do what you do to survive. There's another thing Philip Ball cites in his article that uh, I'd read before, but uh, I, I had forgotten about until now, which I thought was pretty interesting. He talks about some of the research of uh, Jean Piaget in the 1960s that was about how young children often instinctively use visual features of quantities rather than explicit counting in order to judge the magnitude of a quantity. For example, if you're to ask a child, you know, which group of marbles has more in it, you take mm -hmm. the same number of marbles and you line them up widely spaced versus densely spaced, young children will tend to think that the group with wider spacing has more marbles in it, even if they're the same number. And I could be wrong about this, but I think I recall when I was reading this, that the studies showed that the kids thought even if you just moved the same number of marbles around right in front of their eyes, they still thought when you spaced them out, there was more in them. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. This, uh, this reminds me of, of something that I've accused my child and my cat of on many occasions. Not so much my, my child anymore, more when he was younger, but uh, the idea of crumb blindness where once the larger portions of a particular meal have been consumed, mm -hmm. there is an inability to realize that there is still a substantial amount of food on the plate, albeit in smaller, spread-out form. Um, I think the boys figured it out, but the cat still seems clueless to this. Well, I think it could also highlight something, which is that um, it, th there's some indication. Oh, I mentioned earlier that I was going to come back to that uh, that research indicating that babies are maybe using what is sometimes believed to be a number module in the brain when they're judging different quantities of objects in their visual field. Mm -hmm. uh, there was that researcher, Daniel Ansari, who I mentioned earlier, um, who, who uh, also is cited in this article talking about how the neuroscience research into human infants actually became more complicated as it went on, where he said that more recent research has revealed some dissimilarities between the way that brains process non-symbolic numbers, so that would mean like something that you can look at, you know, a number of dots in your visual field mm -hmm. versus symbolic numbers, you know, numbers that you're manipulating based on their symbols, nine plus five or something. And this more recent research has found that they're not always correlated. Uh, uh, to read part of a quote from Ansari here, that challenges the notion that the brain mechanisms for processing culturally invented number symbols maps on to the non-symbolic number system. I think these systems are not as closely related as we thought. So maybe the brain is actually doing something importantly kind of different when it's judging quantities based on you know, visual cues, like looking at a number of physical objects, versus when it is manipulating abstract numbers through learned symbols. Hmm. But this uh, makes you wonder about, like, is it possible that a crucial element in number sense is actually language or some form of language? Does having a naming system for numbers unlock types of numeracy that aren't really there if you don't have that naming system? Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes back to what I said earlier about the cat, right? If without mm -hmm. the word for cat, you can't engage in more complex uses of its basic catness, you know, I uh -huh. can't, I can't make uh, uh, comparisons and analogies and metaphors regarding the cat uh, if I don't have some sort of word for it, right? Well, this here you go. Maybe this will tie way back to our first monster episode. Could you imagine a cat-human hybrid if you didn't have a, a word for cat? Does yeah. like having a word for these animals allow you to start mixing and matching them in a way that you wouldn't if you didn't have the word? Yeah. Doing theriomorphic arithmetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Just a weird idea. Now that I think about it, maybe I'm doubting that, actually. Surely you could picture that with it. Well, I don't know. Who, who knows what? <laughs> well, I'm doubting myself every which way now. Well, but I guess the, the I guess on one level, yes, if you're you're a human being, you're standing next to a human being and you see the lion, mm. I... I'm I'm going to you know be generous enough to imagine that that even the ancient imaginative force was enough to to put the two together but then for that combination then itself to have some sort of value that can be easily transmitted 
then it helps to have those two words, right? Right. Because then you can say like, imagine the wolf man or, you know, imagine the lion man, as opposed to saying, hey, you ever seen that critter out there that, you know, that big, the big scary one that, 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 uh, you know, I don't know, ate Tharg the other day. Well, (laughs) imagine that, but with Tharg's head. No, instead of its own, you know, it just becomes more complicated trying to put the two together. But if you have the words, then you have the, like, the, then the combination of the two words. The hybrid is also so much more easily um, conveyed to other people and discussed and used and has kind of weight all its own. Yeah. Well, we may have to come back to this, but also back to numbers, because I think there's another way of looking at this question that, that we'll have to revisit in a future episode, which is, uh, do we have any evidence that could answer the question of how, in fact, our prehistoric ancestors first started using the concept of numbers and displaying signs of a number sense as opposed to just a quantity sense? Uh, and if there are signs of that, uh, can that shed any light on this question? I, I think we will come back to that in a future episode, maybe a very near future episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might. I was. We were talking about this earlier. Should we do a part one and a part two? Maybe it is ultimately a part one and part two instead of like two related standalone episodes. I don't know, but uh, but yeah, we'll de- I th- we'll definitely be back to discuss this more. Like ultimately, like it's kind of the invention of numbers. Uh, and what does what does what does it mean? And and then where is the invention taking place? And what cultures? What different systems? Et cetera. And what can we what can we learn from those? Yeah, I'm jazzed. Jazz for numbers, man. I'm going to have one more uh, small child story, and I don't know how this relates to anything we've discussed. Maybe it doesn't. Um, But when my son was either less than two or more than two, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how old he was. He was approximately a two-year-old, I think. Um, I remember there would be these situations where he would have a snack or a meal or something, generally a snack situation or some sort of like shared, um, uh, you know, plate situation. And... He would be excited about eating something, and then if if uh, if I as an adult were to come up and have a piece of it, like to take a Cheerio for myself or what have you, mm-hmm. or a chip, uh, there were on more than one occasion he would look dejected and he would say, "Why you eat it all?" and uh, <laughs> and I, I keep coming back to that, like like a you know some level of like food insecurity or just like or this you know how does it relate to our discussing of of. Uh, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, thinking about quantities and numbers, because like, clearly I didn't eat it all. Mm-hmm. And n- never did I come around and just eat all of the food that was allocated to him. Uh, oh, this seems very related to the general psychological phenomenon of, um, of, of totalizing the single experience. You ever mm-hmm. notice how, uh, like if you if you do something one time that somebody doesn't like, sometimes they'll be like, "Why are you always doing this?" But in fact, <laughs> you did it once. But yeah. if like they really didn't like it, it feels like it's always happening, right? Right. Yeah. So anyway, like I say, that may have, may have no connection to anything we've discussed here, but I, I I've been thinking about it in the background the whole time, so I had to share it. Why you eat them all? All right, we're going to go ahead and close it out for today, but we'll be back with more discussion of numbers and more discussion of various other topics in the immediate future. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. There's so many places to get podcasts these days, so many podcasts, and we're just we're grateful that you're spending any amount of time listening to our podcast episodes uh especially since we're putting out more than ever before right now we have our core episodes of stuff to blow your mind on tuesdays and thursdays uh on wednesdays we tend to put out an artifact unless it's been preempted on mondays it's listener mail and on fridays it's weird house cinema that's the the day that we set most of the science and culture aside and we just discuss some manner of b movie or weird film or whatever it happens to be Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.